Okay, it's saying preparing to live stream. Hello, thank you for joining us on another uh, Facebook live event. Um, I am Dr. Steve Vargo, Optometric Practice Management Consultant uh, with IDOC, and I'm very happy to have here with me Dr. Michael Duenas. Uh, we'll be addressing a lot of the common questions around um, safety protocol. And just a quick bio, some background on, on Dr. Duenas. He is the Chief Public Health Officer of the American Optometric Association. He's a UAB School of Optometry graduate. He has 20 years, 20 plus years uh, of experience in solo, private, and hospital-based practice. And his clinical services and interdisciplinary teaching led to appointments by the Secretary of HHS and full-time service to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC. And as a CDC health scientist, uh, Dr. Duenas was responsible for integrating vision care among all CDC divisions and centers, developing and expanding vision and eye health data sources through state health departments, initiating the PPOD diabetes integrative practice model and testifying before the U.S. Congress on vision health issues. He currently represents the AOA on several fronts, including FDA's Medical Devices Network of Experts and the Diabetes Advocacy Alliance as immediate past chair of the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute and advisory panel on improving healthcare systems. So, Michael, thank you so much uh, for jumping on live with us. Really appreciate you, you taking the time here today. Thank you, Steve. I, I really appreciate you reaching out to me and the AOA, and I especially appreciate the whole IDOC team, so thank you. Thank you, yeah. I, I think this is gonna be very informative, and I think something that we've seen over the, um, over the past few weeks is a, uh, the focus change a bit, and I think in somewhat of an, an optimistic way, I, a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about, things were more a crisis mode. We were talking about a lot of areas around finance and HR and how do I get loans? What if I don't get loans? What do I do with my staff? And I, I, it feels like we're starting to turn a corner here to offices focus now on uh, getting their staff reopened. Through that, obviously, a lot of safety issues have, um, have come up from our members, and I think ODs around the country is how do I create a safe work environment for uh, my patients, for uh, my employees, and, and for myself as well. So um, we're going to tackle some of those uh, topics here, and, and I'm, I'm so glad we've got you here to, to give us some insight. The, um, let's maybe start with a definition, because something that's come up a, a lot uh, early on, actually, and and I believe it was the the CDC, um, their some of their guidance in the beginning was around suspending uh, routine care, and I, I believe that's been lifted as of recently. Uh, but a lot of offices are still in this transition phase of seeing patients under these, you know, emergency. We're just taking urgent exams, and there's been a little bit of ambiguity around what that means. Right. Even with patients saying, "I lost my glasses." Guess what? It's an emergency. I can't see, and and doctors not sure how to handle that. So, um, could you provide some clarity on on the definition? 
around urgent and emergency care as it applies to uh, optometry practices? Sure, that's a great question, Steve. And it's one that I get a lot. Um, we've been handling calls from doctors across the country. Um, uh, probably I've spoken to at least 300 different practices in the last few weeks. And um, a lot of them do have that question. Um, and we do talk about it a bit on the phone. So uh, in order to understand that, we can look back to why the CDC made the recommendation they did. And their recommendation, of course, was around March 17th when they uh, decided that they should suspend, we should suspend routine dental and um, vision care. And the reason they did that was uh, for a number of different reasons. One is because we had to make sure that people actually stayed home. Um, and we were trying to flatten the curve at the time. Uh, um, and that was very important to keep those patients home uh, and only allow patients to come out of their house for an appropriate um, appointment um, for emergency or urgent care. So then everybody started to say, well, what is emergency care? And how do, you know, if a patient, you, meant, you mentioned if a patient broke their glasses, they didn't have another pair of glasses, that could be an emergency. And, you know, in some cases it could. Um, uh, you know, I had instances where doctors had called me and said, um, this is an emergency room physician who broke their glasses. It's the only pair of glasses they have. Uh, and they're seeing COVID patients. Um, and we, at that point, um, that's, that could be an emergency. So you're right. Um, but in terms of emergency, what we really think about is whether there's uh, an ocular or systemic disease, um, in which case that um, any um, lack of care could cause permanent vision loss. Okay. And that, um, and that, so, so when it comes back to identifying whether it's an emergency or not, it's really not the patient that should decide that it's the doctor. So it's really a doctor decided thing. Um, and again, it goes back to the risk of permanent injury. Um, some examples would be things like, well, if you get a referral from an ER, that's important to see that patient. But trauma, uh, eye pain, um, vision loss, unexplained vision loss, diplopiatosis, light flashes, floaters, we all know those things. Those can be an emergency. They are an emergency. They need to be seen. So I think that that's, that's the important thing. And then in seeing the patient, you really have to weigh the morbidity and mortality um, that can be uh, um, affected by seeing the patient you know, so in a way that, so it's really a decision by the doctor. Yeah. So some, some obvious, some discretion as well, Absolutely. professional discretion. Um, so with so many different sources and I'll ask doctors, I've been part of these groups just like this on zoom with different doctors and right. they're talking about different ways that they are um, approaching building a safety protocol. And I've asked sometimes, what are your, where are you getting your recommendations? And there, there's, it seems to be a lot of different sources out there. Some, I think the state associations have, are weighing in the C, you know, all the letters, the CDC, the CMS, the, the AOA, and, he, and even one doctor told me, I'm just using common sense, which maybe there's something <laughs> to that too. Um, what, in your mind, working directly in this area, what public health principles really should inform um, our, our COVID-19 response as a profession? So in terms of public health, I think that what we all need to realize um, as healthcare providers is that healthcare providers are part of the public health emergency system. So um, when there is a public health emergency, 
there are various sectors that become involved and healthcare is a sector of that involvement. And, and when I say optometrists, it's also the staff of optometrists are part of that health, public healthcare team. So if we start to think about public health and epidemiology, there's really um, three things that we need to consider always. And those three things are combined in the epi triangle. So if we think about the epi triangle, the epi triangle is the agent, the host, and the environment, and how that comes together. So if we start to think about all that we do and all we think about doing in our practice, if we think around that, what's the agent, what's the host, and what's the environment, and how can I manipulate those three factors to help improve safety? So that's what we're trying to do in public health. So if we think about it, um, let's talk a little bit just quickly about the agent. And the agent we know um, is a coronavirus. And the coronavirus was first isolated in 1960. And the interesting thing about the coronavirus, and you've all seen pictures of it, um, it's a very pretty picture and it has a nice crown to it. And those little crowns are important. They're important to how it affects the host. So if we think about that, in the host, there's ACE2 receptors. And those ACE2 receptors bind to that coronavirus, to the crown. So let's just say if I have this is the, uh, the host cell, right? And here's the ACE2 receptor on the host cell. And here's the crown of the coronavirus. That crown has to come within one micron of this host ACE2 receptor in order to cause the disease. Because once it comes that close, it can transmit its, its uh, DNA into the, into the cell, and then the cell starts making more virus. So that's important to know. The other thing that's important to know about the host is that we're talking about a virus that has never been in the environment before. So there's no immunity. So anyone who gets that close enough to their ACE2 receptor is gonna get the disease. So that's another thing to think about. Um, so susceptibility, and then understanding comorbidities too with the host are, are important. And then how do we manipulate the environment? The good thing about the coronavirus is that the envelope around the coronavirus is very fragile. So it can be disrupted by soaps, alcohol, detergents, a number of different things even ultraviolet light. So we know that there is some things that we can do in the environment to help. So I want people to kind of think about that. So the fact that we're all part of that and that we're all uh, should be thinking along those three lines always, okay? Then the other thing, there's two other things that I think we should be thinking about. And that is um, the, the death rate in this disease. And if we look at today's statistics, um, the New York Times is reporting that there's 1,045,300 cases of uh, positive COVID, and the death total right now stands at 60,945. And if you just take the, de the deaths and divide that by the total positive cases, we see that the death rate is 5.8%. Now, a death rate of 5.8%, we know is probably not realistic because we don't know all the positive cases out there. 
but let's just assume that maybe the positive cases are double or triple that. It still puts the death rate at a very high level, much higher than the seasonal flu, which is at really 0.1%. And that 0.1% is actually 0.053, but rounded up to 0.1%. So we're talking about something that's, you know, has a pretty high death rate. The other thing to consider with public health is the R0 or the secondary attack rate. And with the secondary attack rate, what's important with that is that that tells us how easily it's transmitted from host to host, from individual to individual. And right now the reports are, it's probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 2.5, 2.7. And that's telling us that for every one individual that gets infected, they're going to infect probably three or four other individuals. What we can do to try to combat that is to keep people from getting close enough to get the virus. And that's where the six feet comes in. And that's where the stay at home orders came in. So if we can get the R naught value one or below, we can stop the virus. But that's very difficult to do. But in, in terms of seasonal flu, the R naught and seasonal flu is just a little bit over one to begin with. Mm. And the reason for that is because with seasonal flu, people show symptoms right away. But as we know with, um, with the coronavirus and COVID, you don't show symptoms a lot of times for the first 48 hours, and some people never show symptoms. So that's the difference there. So those are the public health things I want people to keep in mind. Yeah, and that helps put things into context because I think, you know, people can manipulate those numbers to make it sound better or worse, I think, than it really is. So, right. you know, having a, you know, more of, I think the more we lean on data and science, the better um, as we as we move forward with this. Uh, Michael, it's been, you know, widely reported that certain comorbidities are risk factors for an unfavorable prognosis. Um, what, what are some of the top comorbidities associated with deaths due to COVID-19? And, and what does that mean for the optometric profession? So, um, you know, the comorbidities are um, important to understand. And it's really important to understand that um, if we look at our uh, general population, our cohort that we service in optometry, I would say probably 80% of our patients fall within having some comorbidity that puts them at a higher risk of COVID and um, complications. So that's become, that becomes really important. Um, we know that age is a factor. So if, it's, if you're over 65, um, your risk of COVID complications is much higher. So if Say just a little percent, let's say four to five percent. And if we look at the, then these are C CDC statistics that came out um, looking at the period March 1 through March 30th. And if we look at age 65 or greater, um, the percentage is about 14 percent, 14 to 15 percent. So the people that are going to the hospital for complications are tend to be older, but not necessarily. So we have complications at other ages too, but the vast majority tend to be age 65 and older. So that's one. So if we look at other comorbidities associated with it, um, 
the, the morbidity that stands out the most is hypertension. And we know that a lot of our patients have hypertension. We're looking, uh, we're checking for blood pressure and we're, um, we're managing patients with hypertension. Obesity is the second most common. And we know that um, optometrists in general are um, addressing obesity with their patients. We're often um, checking for BMI and recording that. So that's important to know. Um, metabolic disease, um, we think about diabetes. Um, we know that a large portion of our practice is diabetic patients or patients with diabetes, very important. Uh, lung disease, um, and then asthma. And so those are the kinds of things that um, we start to see as important uh, underlying comorbidities or conditions which cause a, a greater uh, problem. Um, other, other things are neurological disease, renal disease, um, pulmonary disease, immunosuppressive disease is another, um, congestive heart failure, GI and liver disease, blood disorders, and then rheumatological uh, problems. Um, and that's in that descending order there. Um, so those are the kinds of things that we need to be concerned about. And um, if we're starting to think about our patient base, that's a good um, way in which we can be helpful to our patients. Um, we could go through our patients and see who fits those, uh, those categories and, and, and inform them that they're at higher risk of complications. One thing I found out yesterday that I didn't know um, from a CDC webinar was that these people um, with these comorbidities, not only are they at higher risk of developing complications from COVID, but they're also at higher risk of acquiring um, uh, the, the disease in the first instance. So that's something I didn't know that yeah. I learned yesterday. Yeah. Um, so the, I think a lot of offices are following the guidelines of the CDC and, and their state in terms of when it's safe to reopen. All along, there's been an emotional component to this as well. What's, what's the right thing to do? Should I close? Should I stay open? Is it, when is it time to reopen? Um, curious if you could shed some light on that. What are the main factors that, that determine when optometry practices can reopen um, for patients other than just urgent and emergency cases? So great question. Um, and let's, let's think about this for a second. Remember I mentioned that optometrists are part of the public health care emergency system. So when we had the public health emergency first start, the thing that had to happen was that we, again, we needed people to stay home. We needed to um, uh, make sure that there was good surge capacity in our hospitals and we needed to um, keep PPE um, available for hospitals as opposed to outpatient clinics. So when, so I, the, the optometrists, and I want to give them uh, a lot of kudos because nobody really complained all that much. They understood that they were part of the solution and what they did and what they've given up has um, gotten us to the next level, right? So, uh, you know, it's, it's amazing that um, people um, really heard the call understood when CDC put that out, um, and then when the AOA supported it, I think it was really important that people really listened and, and took that to heart. Um, and, and so that was, that was very good. Now, as we start to relax that a bit, um, it's gonna be very regional. Um, and if you think about public health, public health um, is a little bit different than other policy. Public health is more local than it is federal. So 
when, when the um, White House or a federal agency comes out with a guidance, um, that guidance filters down and actually the, the people that have the most power in whether to uh, accept that guidance are at the local level. So it then goes to governors, it then goes to mayors. So, you know, and, and so it's very important for the docs now to listen to their local folks that are going to be looking at the local factors and filtering the federal guidance and guidance from up above as to what to do next. And so that becomes really important. And again, think of this as we're all part of a team, a larger team, trying to combat this problem in a meaningful and sustainable way, okay? So the things that we need to look at locally are what is the testing capacity locally? And do we have the, the testing that's necessary to identify uh, people with positive COVID? That may include people with symptoms and also people without symptoms. We can talk about that a little bit later. Um, we need the ability to track cases. So we need to be able to trace, isolate, and treat people. Um, we need to have adequate surge capacity at the hospitals at a local level. Adequate surge capacity is about 30% capacity uh, that's not being used before we can start um, really seeing patients and, and allowing that um, case count to start to go up again. Um, so those are the kinds of things we need to do. The two other things that we can think about, especially with our patients that are at high risk, is is there an adequate treatment? Um, and we've heard some uh, possible treatments um, even yesterday. Um, those treatments are designed really to um, for individuals that are being hospitalized, and that slows the um, uh, the rate of the need for hospitalization from 15 days to 11 days. So it's not a it's not a panacea, but it is help. Um, but we'll be we'll be seeing more and more treatments um, and on down the road. So that's something to consider. And then of course vaccination, um, which would be the ultimate. Um, but then we also have to um, find the vaccine. We have to be able to um, manufacture the vaccine and then get it to everybody. So those are the things that we'd be looking at in terms of when it's safe to reopen. Yeah, and, and I, I couldn't agree more with something you said earlier. You were referencing the amount that um, that ODs have given up through this, mm -hmm. and it, it's really extraordinary. And I, I've, uh, you know, I, I've told doctors that before. It's just, it's, uh, it's heartbreaking um, right. in some cases what they've had to go through. Most, um, you know, across the board, whatever uh, mode of practice you're in, um, you know, we work closer with private practices, which are mostly small businesses, but you know, it's, it's a difficult, challenging business to run when you don't have a pandemic sitting on your head. And That's right. this has been a really extraordinary time. Um, and I, you know, I empathize with, with, um, with, with the profession in general. The preparation coming back to work is another thing that seems <laughs> extraordinary. Yeah. Um, so there's going to be a lot of new things, right? New safety protocols, um, things that seem like nonsense and craziness six weeks ago, like going to work in masks and making your patient wear masks, but it's all going to be different, at least for the immediate, you know, future with, with safety protocols and the way we operate. Um, can you talk about planning? What, what type of practice plans should be in place before 
an office opens their door for both the routine and emergency care? So, um, it, you know, it's just about like creating a passage plan if you're a sailor. Um, you have to think ahead. Again, look at the epi triangle, go back to that and think about those areas in which you can have an influence. So one of the things that always comes up is PPE, and that's extremely important. We've seen what happened um, uh, for healthcare professionals. Healthcare professionals are in close contact with patients. So they're at, they're at higher risk of, of getting COVID. Um, so we have to put barriers in place, and PPE is very helpful for that. Um, you can see what happened in the, in the emergency departments around the country when we didn't have proper PPE. Um, we have now, a, 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 in the U.S., approximately 70,000, no, 20, 20 some thousand, uh, 27,000, I think was the last count, of, of, of healthcare providers who have um, gotten COVID-19 um, from uh, seeing patients. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that they didn't have the proper PPE. Um, unfortunately, we ha we've had about a little, maybe 70 or so deaths um, from healthcare providers. So we, we want to keep that in, our, in the back of our minds. So PPE supply is really important. Um, we also need to pre-screen patients. So it's something we've, we've never done before. You know, we're a profession where we love people just to come in the door, right? Um, uh, you know, and, you know, we do great at taking care of everybody that comes in the door. And we expect that door to be uh, swinging back and forth and, and open all the time. During this time, um, we really don't want that. We really want to be able to pre-screen patients. We want to be able to limit their time in the office. And if their time in the office can be limited to zero, that's even better. So we want to think about whether there's virtual technologies that we can use to do some of the things that are necessary. Um, so we also want to, in that entry plan, we need to have an entry plan where we limit people who come in. They don't need to bring uh, their families with them um, and they don't need to bring um, other people um, into the optical, let's say, for looking at frames or doing things like that, like we're used to doing. Um, we have to think about infection control and we have to think about infection control in all areas of the office, not just the exam room. Um, and that's, comes down to the frame room, the front office, and especially the restrooms, which you know we don't really think much about. Um, but all of that is really important. The other thing that um, I've been hearing more and more about um, from internal medicine, actually, um, is that the more things that we can do outside, outside in the environment, uh, the better. When you think about it, um, you've got really good air circulation outside. You're not in a room. Um, we know that the uh, coronavirus can stay floating in the air for two to three hours um, if somebody coughs. So um, the, you can eliminate a lot of this by doing procedures outside. Um, we've heard of things like uh, drive-through IOP checks. Um, there can be drive-through, you know, frame adjustments. There can be drive-through lots of different things. So um, those kinds of things are important to consider outside versus inside. And then the other thing I think, lastly, we need to start to think about procedures and what procedures we're doing 
whether that procedure is absolutely necessary at this time or whether it can be postponed or whether there's some other way of doing it. So um, I'll just give you two procedures that I think that are important to consider. So one of the things that is very um, critical is not producing an aerosol of the virus. So if you think about taking somebody into a pre-op or pre-prep room and um, doing non-contact tonometry on them, uh, that may not be a great idea, um, especially since the uh, conjunctiva can be a route of exposure and we could be um, uh, taking um, viral particles and then pushing them through the air. So that's something to consider. Also consideration of how do you um, uh, want, to, how do you adequately, and I get this question a lot, how do you adequately um, disinfect um, uh, some of the equipment that we have? One of the problems is a Goldman perimeter uh, and the bowl in the Goldman perimeter. It's very fragile. Um, it can't be uh, cleaned um, with disinfectants or that um, uh, phosphorus element in that bowl gets damaged. So there's things to consider uh, that we need to really consider. That takes planning. Um, and it's going to take um, not only planning just by the optometrist, but by the optometrist and their staff as a team. Mm -hmm. Because everybody has to be on the same page. Yeah, I, I think that's key too, is not getting overwhelmed thinking you have to do this all on your own. But th this is the time to, to be a leader. And part of being a leader is uh, coordinating a team and making sure that everyone is, uh, you know, is clear on their role, um, that enough training goes in, but also a willingness to listen to them as well, because they probably are going to have some good ideas along the way. They're going to see things on the front line. So yeah, I, I think that team component is, is critical. Michael, I don't, I've been in this role for five years and I don't think over five years I fielded one single question about telehealth. Yeah. <laughs> the past month. Thanks, right? <laughs> and it, you know, nobody liked it or wanted it before. And now there's a, suddenly at least an interest in it. Um, I shouldn't say nobody liked it. It was just this, um, uh, maybe the parts of it are that are more controversial. People were a little aversive too, but for um, you know some of the other areas that uh, doctors have been using it for, where do you see? I mean, is this something practices should be using telehealth, virtual care services, um, whenever possible to continue to provide um, service and, and reduce the risk of, of COVID nineteen transmission? Absolutely. Um, you know, until we have uh, really until we have a vaccine. Um, we want to try to um, limit contact as much as possible. And um, I think that we need to start to uh, uh, think a little bit outside the box. Um, we've gotten um, some authority to do that. So, um, you know, CMS through their um, emergency use authorizations has allowed a lot of leeway um, in what we were doing with telehealth um, and allowing a lot of things um, non-HIPAA compliant uh, technologies to be able to be used during this emergency. So um, I think that, you know, we should start to think about how best we can use some of those. Um, there's a lot, there's a laundry list of things that we need done um, with patients. And, um, you know, we're so used to, this is Steve, this is so, you know, we're so used to doing everything on every patient, right? Mm -hmm. And then we have, we want to have 100% of the data to make the call of what to do. And so what we're, what we're getting to now is that, you know, do we need 100% of the data or can we get 
80% of the data from these ways and then extrapolate to get to something that may work for a time period before we can uh, put off the full comprehensive assessment. So these are all things to start to consider. Um, there are products out there that we can use. A lot of products are simply um, uh, a Skyping or a FaceTime with a patient. Um, I don't know about you, but I had a visit the other day with my uh, internal medical doctor uh, through FaceTime, um, through their, uh, through a Zoom meeting, I guess, or a FaceTime, um, but it, it worked out very well. Um, I think it was, it's, it's, uh, it's something that more and more we, we're going to need to consider. And again, the consideration should be um, with each patient, uh, what can we do to either limit the time in the office, certainly limit time in like a waiting room or, um, or, or, or an area where they can be exposed, and then um, try to limit the procedures that we need to do to what, you know, to what we actually need to do to make a diagnosis, all right? Um, we certainly um, don't have the technology that some um, uh, professions have, um, which will enable us to actually uh, make a diagnosis, but we can gain enough information that maybe we can, um, be, that can be useful to our practice. Yeah. And I mean, you've probably seen some of the same studies over the past month or so. The number, the percentage of doctors, optometrists, I think that study was particular tracking uh, have gone up. The number of uh, doctor percentage using telehealth, the percentage that were interested in possibly using telehealth, and I thought this was interesting as well, the percentage of patients that were interested in having that as an option has gone up. Anecdotally, when, again, we've been doing these group meetings with other doctors in, um, in, in Zoom chats like this, and right. I've asked the ones who are offering it, will you continue offering it? Mm -hmm. And most of them said, absolutely. For the things that they don't have to see in, in office, um, they really like that option and their patients like it. So, you know, I, I always tell people, you don't have to like trends, just don't ignore them. And I, I think that's something right. that um, if you just, if you pay attention to trends, I, I think that's something that's probably going to become a little bit more, um, common in, in, in many practices. So let's talk about PPE for a minute. And obviously it's important, um, to ensure the clinical and, and non-clinical staff, um, you know, has the appropriate, uh, personal protective equipment, um, face mask, gloves, eye protection, gowns, um, if you could speak a little bit to what amount of that inventory is necessary and speaking of inventory, where do you get it? Because that's the other thing is uh, it's hard to find we're hearing. So, you know, that last question is more just uh, you, you may not have an answer for that, but, but in general, what, what do we need as far as inventory um, considering it's not always, it's, it's not real easy to find right now we're hearing. Right. Well, uh, the first thing you want to do is identify what your, inventory needs are. And um, as a healthcare provider and being in close contact with patients, um, you know, many of these patients that we're going to be in close contact with, we may know their COVID status, but most likely we won't. Um, and we know that um, a large percentage of them may be asymptomatic and still be COVID positive. So we want to treat every patient as a potential COVID positive. So what we really need is we need to um, have an N95 or KN95 face mask, um, and we need some kind of covering over that mask to help keep it clean. Uh, that can be a, a, a surgical mask over it, or it can be a cloth mask over it. 
Um, and, um, you know, we've got to uh, have eye protection as well. So that, you know, keep in mind that the conjunctiva is a route of exposure. And if you don't have eye protection, either goggles or, uh, or safety glasses with a side shield, you're not um, uh, fully protected. So we need to have that. You've seen um, the, the full face shields. Those are, those are even better. Um, so those are the kinds of things we need. We need gloves, of course, and we need gowns um, in a sense that, you know, your clothing, uh, and I think the clothing's going to change a lot with what uh, doctors wear. Um, and I think we'll all be wearing scrubs. Um, but the, the thing is that we're going to need to change this clothing um, often. And um, we can't rely on um, just wearing the same uh, clothes all the time. Certainly neckties will be out um, because you don't even wander those. Uh, those are bad in the first place. Um, so those kinds of changes need to be, need, need to be made. Um, in terms of uh, the amount of PPE that you need, um, they recommend, it's recommended that offices have a 30-day supply of PPE on hand before they start seeing patients. Um, and that 30-day supply can either be on-site inventory or it can be partially from a supplier that's a dedicated supplier that you know that you're going to get the, the PPE. So. Um, that 30-day supply is something that I don't think many offices have yet. Um, you mentioned where to get it. Um, I've had calls from all over the country on that. Um, I think we have to be very careful of where we get it. Um, we're, we're hearing now that there's some um, uh, N95 products being um, possibly sold on the market, coming from China, actually, um, that are not actually N95. So um, I think we, we need to be careful of that. Try to buy from a reputable dealer. Um, and um, it's important that that dealer that you bought from uh, purchase it from a, um, an importer um, that is a reputable importer. Now, on the N95 versus KN95, because I get this question a lot, um, though it, it's equivalent. So we can use either of those. But those are the kinds of PPE that we need. Okay. I hope that answered the question. Yeah, absolutely. So a doctor told me yesterday that her, she's realizing that her staff is a little bit hit and miss on some of the safety protocols and, you know, no staff is going to be perfect, but this is probably not the, you know, best time to be lacking attention to detail. Um, what about staff training? I mean, should they, I think it's a bit of a rhetorical question here. Obviously they should receive staff training on PPE. Um, what are your thoughts on that and demonstrating competency uh, with selection and, and proper use of the PPE? What should offices be implementing to make sure uh, that they know how to do it, but not only that, but that they continue to follow through on, on doing it right and doing it consistently? That's, that's a great question. And um, Steve, you know, part of the thing is, is that as an employer, um, the employer has a, a duty um, to let their employees know if there is a safety issue in the office. Um, we can't expect the employees to, to know, um, so there is this expectation that the employer will let the um, uh, staff know of potential problems. And then there's also an expectation through OSHA that the doctor will or the, the employer will provide adequate PPE. <clears throat> and that adequate PPE, we know, 
is a face mask, goggles, gloves, and potentially a gown, depending upon your patient contact. So those things need to be provided. Um, once they're provided, there is another uh, hurdle that we have as an employer is that we have to make sure that the employees understand how to use the PPE. And you mentioned a good point of how to put on PPE and how to take off PPE, how to store PPE. Uh, the other thing that we're gonna be seeing is that because N95 face masks are hard to get, we have to figure out a way to either uh, reuse them or uh, sterilize them, okay? So a lot of people are taking N95 masks and putting them in a paper bag at the end of the day and putting the date on it and then, then the date at which that will be good again, okay? Because we know the coronavirus will only last a certain length of time on that PPE. So you don't have to do anything but set that bag aside and don't use that one until the next time when, it's, mm -hmm. when it can be used again. So those kinds of things are important to make sure that your, um, your staff understands. Um, and so those, how to take off a glove. I mean, we all know how to take off gloves, but there's a way to do it in which you uh, don't reinfect yourself. Um, so those kinds of uh, things are important. As for the screening process, because this comes up a lot, um, you know, new op offices are looking at taking temperatures and asking questions about travel. Um, any thoughts on the screening process for not just the patient, but visitors, staff members as well? Um, for symptoms of COVID-19 prior to their arrival at the facility? Well, another, um, you know, at, when, when COVID first came out and looking at it, um, we really saw this as a respiratory disease. Uh, since then, it's become more than a respiratory disease. Um, so we're, we can't, and the other thing that we, we thought it, First, we realized later was that body temperature is not a good indicator of COVID status. So, yes, um, we could. I mean, I think that doctors of optometry should be taking um, temperature readings. They we should be doing that anyway. That should be a, a data point in our data set. Um, we can do pulse oximetry. That's a good data point, and it's very easy to do. And the pulse oximeters are inexpensive. So, and we should be recording that for each patient. Um, it seems like pulse oximetry might be a good way of, do, of uh, a good indicator because what they're finding is a lot of people have very low oxygen levels and they are still functioning fine. But those people, when they check them, often have COVID. So that's an easy thing to do and it can be done, you know, at an in intake. Um, so those are the things. We need to uh, look at um, things like shortness of breath. Um, we know that there's also um, instances where we have GI problems. Again, any organ with an ACE2 receptor um, is, is involved. So we look think things like diarrhea, of course, sore throat, headaches, nasal congestion, chest pain, abdominal pain, wheezing, and now confusion. So confusion is another, another issue. Um, so those are things that we want to look for, but we can't assume that that's, um, that that's the totality of what we should be looking for. Because again, there may be more, more 
um, people that are asymptomatic still with positive. But I still think it's a good idea to screen for those mm-hmm. um, those kinds of symptoms. Yeah, we we uh, I, you know another doctor the other day. The group of doctors um, that I was talking with were talking about having seen a higher prevalence lately with more of the severe red eye, severe conjunctivitis, iritis. And the question was, they didn't know, but when you start seeing, you know, I think we're all a little hyper vigilant these days toward anything that looks unusual. So, um, you know, I think that's helpful as far as the symptomology to better understand what we're dealing with. Um, I think everything now, anything that looks odd, me and my family went hiking a couple weeks ago. I mean, it was a really remote, we were out by ourselves, but there was some other people hiking and we heard like often 50 yards in front of us, somebody coughing. And I mean, you know, it's like we wanted to turn around and go home and shower and burn up. And they were just coughing a little bit, but I I think we're all getting a little, um, you know, hyper vigilant. I don't know, maybe it's self-protective, but um, to, so I mean, to have a better sense what the symptomology is when people come in. Uh, I, I think gives you better judgment in those situations. Yeah, you know, you mentioned um, uh, uh, conjunctivitis, um, yeah, and there are more and more reports of conjunctivitis. Um, those hospitalized patients, about thirty percent of them have conjunctivitis. Um, so it, it is um, it is something that we're seeing more and more. Um, if you think about it, remember I mentioned that it's more than a respiratory disease. Mm-hmm. There's really um, a few other things that happen. Um, there's hypoxia that sets in, and that low oxygen um, that we're talking about uh, puts a strain um, on a lot of different systems, as we know in the eye. Um, but it also puts a strain on the um, on the heart, and especially the right ventricle. So that's where the chest pains and uh, pressure comes in. Um, we also know that there's a coagulative problem, and um, there's a problem with um, 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 in the microvascular system, hemorrhages. So um, although we're not doing many dilated eye exams on these COVID patients, I bet you if you did that, uh, you'd probably find some retinal hemorrhages as well. Um, but we're seeing hemorrhages throughout the body. So that's the other thing. And then inflammatory uh, processes. Um, when your uh, immune system kicks in, if you're immunosuppressive, or if you have an immune, pro, uh, immune uh, pro systems problem, um, it's exacerbated by COVID, and oftentimes it sets off a cascading effect of the inflammatory processes, um, which um, will cause inflammation in the eye as well. Uh, you mentioned the iritis. So these are all things that we're gonna learn more and more about as we go on. Um, and and you, you bring up a good point that um, you're hearing this um, from other optometrists, and I think that we need to do better as a group to um, to take information and to um, and to get it together and to report out on it, so that we can be um, um, part of the again part of the solution. Because it could mean that um, the eye may be an indicator of, of progression of the disease. Um, and the, the uh, rapidity at which you get to a more complicated state. Uh, patients seem to do really well for the first two weeks, and many of them take, turn the corner at that two-week mark. Um, so there may be indicators earlier on that could indicate which group or cohort might be the group that would uh, turn uh, to be more, uh, a more complicated case. Mm-hmm. So 
can, did I read that right? The 25% of people are asymptomatic. I, I believe I read that somewhere that are COVID positive don't have symptoms, which is, um, it's, it's, uh, can you speak a little bit to the asymptomatic individual? You alluded to that before, but you right. know we're talking about screening for a lot of things. You you can you can see, you can test for, but um, you know there's a risk for asymptomatic people transmitting the disease as well. What, what implications do they bring to the office? Well, you know that's that's one of the uh, the, the positive things that the virus has going for it, um, um, and it, it's a negative thing that. Is going for us right now. So um, you mentioned 25%. That figure of 25% actually came um, from a study that was done a little while ago. Um, and since then, there's been some newer studies done with New York data. And the New York data, they tested, they did three, there's three different tests that I'm aware of, or three different um, uh, studies. One was done with pregnant women. And they took a cohort of about 300 pregnant women, and they uh, just tested all of them. And, and when they tested them all, they found that 15% of them were positive for COVID. 15% of the pregnant women they tested. When they, when they looked at those 15%, 87% of that cohort, 87% had no symptoms, right? 87%. Then they did the same thing in a, in a prison system. Because the prison system, everybody was getting COVID, and they couldn't, they couldn't figure out why it was so rampant. And so they said, we're going to test every prisoner. So they tested every prisoner. And when they did that, they, they found that 80% of the positive COVID patients were asymptomatic, 80%. So now if you go to a cohort, they said, well, maybe in a cohort of a higher uh, of higher morbidity and mortality, um, that wouldn't be the case. So they went to a nursing home and they did the same thing in a nursing home. So they did the same thing and out of all the nursing home patients, um, they figured that 50% of the COVID positive people in a nursing home had were asymptomatic. Wow. So, when it comes to 25%, I think that it, that's really a lot higher than that. Um, and in fact, that's probably the reason why, the number one reason why it's difficult to get this, um, uh, you know, we were, we were able to push the curve down and flatten the curve. But getting to that other side of the curve where the cases actually start to come down is becoming very difficult. Mm -hmm. And part of that difficulty is the asymptomatic population. Um, Los Angeles yesterday um, was the first major city to institute free COVID-19 testing for everyone with or without symptoms. Again, trying to isolate those people with COVID positive that are, don't know they have, that they're spreading the disease. Mm -hmm. um, and those people, um, some of them, uh, can um, actually be um, super spreaders and have no symptom symptomatology. Well, I, I thought twenty five percent sounded high. Yeah, yeah. I thought I, yeah, thought, I, I had mean, to read that I, twice. I, I thought well, one out of four. That sounds that sounds high. Um, Michael, can you tell us a little bit about what COVID nineteen as we kind of wrap things up here? Yeah. What COVID nineteen resources that you recommend? So um, you know we've all been um, 
keeping up with the news. I, I think that that's a good thing to do. Um, and uh, in terms of our, uh, our, of our profession, um, I would like to direct um, your audience to our um, resources at the AOA. Um, we do have a, uh, a COVID webpage dedicated to COVID-19, uh, and that's easily accessible uh, at www.aoa.org forward slash coronavirus. Um, at that page, you'll be able to find just about everything you need. Um, one of the other uh, website that I would like people to go to uh, at some point is our Health Policy Institute website. And that's at www.aoa.org, HPI for Health Policy Institute. Um, both of those resources, I think, will direct you to other resources. So it's important to go to that. If you go to the coronavirus landing page, um, there will be a Health Policy Institute link in that page. If you go to the Health Policy Institute through that page, it will bring you to the coronavirus COVID-19 landing page for the Health Policy Institute. So I would, I would ask that you do that. Um, the other thing is, if you can't find something or you have questions, um, you, can, um, you can either email us through those pages or uh, people can email me directly. Uh, and my email address is very easy. Um, it's either mduanus, that's hard to spell. So you can just use Dr. D, uh, DRD with no dot, at AOA.org. And I'd be glad to um, uh, receive emails and try to help with any other further questions that um, your, uh, your constituents may have um, through IDOC. Dr. Michael Duanus, Dr. D, uh, Chief Public Health Officer of the AOA, thank you so much for your time. This was, uh, I think, incredibly insightful as practices prepare to reopen. Um, you know, I, I appreciate your time and, and all your hard work and all the hard work that's going on with your colleagues at the AOA as well. Um, I'll just add as we close out here, in addition to the um, resources that Dr. Duanus mentioned, um, check out the uh, IDOT COVID-19 Resource Center. By You uh, can find that easily at our website, idoc.net, and you'll see a pop-up with a, a link to that. And it's, we're constantly updating that with new content. Um, so take a look at that. And I, I think I speak for both of us and a lot of others. Uh, I look forward to the time we're not talking about this anymore. And, and we, we can move on to, to other things. But um, for now, I'll just thank you once again, Michael, and, and just say thanks and, and stay safe to everybody. Thank you. Stay safe yourself. Thank you. Thank you so much.